HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. Learn more at restaurantworkerscf.org. This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. So was it the eggplant? Sure. Why not? I just don't know. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3 anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Hey, Bobby. How's it going? Hey, Zaz. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Good. How's how, your, how was your week? How was my week? <laughs> Funny you should ask. You know what? I'm not having the best week. I feel sad this week. I'm mm. having some personal problems and I'm feeling a little bit low mm. and... Sometimes when I feel low, I don't necessarily treat myself with as much. I think everybody kind of has a different thing. We talk about it a lot on this show. Yes. My thing is that I lose my appetite. Mm -hmm. So I've been eating a lot of crackers and butter. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of seltzer. And that's pretty much what my week has been like. So I'm looking (laughs) forward to, I kind of, I set small goals for myself. So I think that my goal is that next Monday, I'll just take another step in the right direction mm-hmm. rather than putting too much pressure on myself. And, you know, I, I try to, at this point in my life, be a little bit realistic when I'm in times of That makes a lot of sense so to be realistic. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Well, my week was interesting. I was, I found myself what I call the visiting deer service. Oh. And that means that I have a lot of people in my life that are struggling. Yeah. So particularly my best friend who's really sick. So the visiting deer service means that I, I try to find a way to help. Yeah. And so I 
go and collect ingredients and I cook something up that I think my friends or my people in my life will need and then I prepare it and then I deliver it and I just feel so good afterwards because it's what I can do. We've yeah. talked about this in the show before and we both know that together we, we realize that preparing food is a way that we love our friends and the people that we love in our life. Yeah, that's very sweet. And you call it the visiting deer service because a deer is an animal that you really feel close to, right? That's well, your, your I do, animal. But it's also D-E-A-R. Oh. So it's yeah. both. Cute. Yes. Awesome. And I used to work for the visiting nurse service. Right. So. <laughs> so today on the show, we had the great pleasure of speaking with the one, the only, the absolutely incomparable force of a woman, Dana Cowan. Uh, Dana hosts a show called Speaking Broadly here on Heritage Radio Network. Please check it out. Um, and Wonderful she, interviews. Amazing interviews. Mm-hmm. I have been lucky enough to be a guest myself. She's an amazing interviewer and an amazing person and a very inspiring person and a personal mentor of mine. Incredibly smart. Br- brilliant. Yeah. Um, Dana is also a 21-year veteran, of, uh, editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine, mm-hmm. and currently works on a plethora of projects, mm-hmm. so many that it is actually hard to even including, describe. Including mentoring, mentoring women in the food industry, yeah. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Dana's a force and I love her dearly and it was a wonderful conversation and we hope that you enjoy our talk with Dana Cowan. As you know, on the show, we are exploring the intersection of food and grief. And in that, I guess I'd like to kind of start by asking you about, you know, what are, what are your earliest food memories? How did you begin to love food or not love it? What was it like for you growing up? Was it a big deal in the home? You're going to stop there. Yes. No. <laughs> was a big deal in the home. Where was your home? How How many floors? How many rooms? How many bathrooms? That's a game we used to play at school. <laughs> how many bathrooms do you have? Anyway. So um, when I was growing up, food was not an important part of our lives really at all. My earliest food memory, oddly, is uh, ants on lollipops the day of my third birthday. It made me so sad. Right? There was pure grief. Um, here I was having a really fun party, but we hid all the lollipops all around the lawn. Uh-oh. And by the time we went to find them, they were covered with ants. So <laughs> I wasn't the only unhappy one. Everyone was really unhappy when they got their prize, and it was crawling with ants. Uh, Did anybody eat them? I think they all returned them to center. <laughs> I don't think any of us actually um, ate those lollipops. But, but just to say... So many people have that like aha moment. It was in their childhood. Mine was not. Yeah. We had holiday dinners together, um, and our dinners at home were bland. Yeah. And unadventurous. I don't think there were any spices that were younger than sort of five years old. So I don't know <laughs> what happened between one and five, but then they just stayed on the shelf um, that was over the stove, so they could. Ah, nice. And yes, I mean, essentially so that they would be ready to use, but in fact, they were baking and using all their flavor and essence. So I just had, you know, grilled, boiled food food for most of my um, childhood. My father was an early adapter of um, a healthy lifestyle, and he had yogurt and fish and no fat, and he was really, really diet conscious. Like, he was a kind of like a Wall Street hippie. Like, he was never very Wall Street and he was never hippie, but he adopted some sure. of those practices. Um, and my mother was his exact opposite. 
So her breakfast was instant black coffee, pork rinds, and a Hershey's bar. Oh my gosh! And she wow. actually only gave up two of those three in the last ten years. Which ones? Pork, uh, coffee, and chocolate, but still eats pork rinds. <laughs> <laughs> she kept the coffee. Wow! Yeah, that's an important thing to keep. But you mentioned that you had celebrations. So what were they like? So our celebrations were around Thanksgiving, and we would all go to my mother's parents' house in Westchester, and my grandmother, who I don't remember ever cooking, though I've been corrected on this, that my grandmother did indeed cook. I never saw evidence, except um, she made one fantastic soup and the holidays. What was the soup? Oh, it's called Memer Soup, of course, because that's her name. But it was essentially um, a bone broth with skinny noodles and uh, and vegetables and it was so satisfying mm-hmm. it was so good do you still make it um i've tried and i've failed mm-hmm. which you know is a long list of my culinary failures but um marco canora who has brodo which is a broth company mm-hmm. his broth comes close to that really satisfying like it, it um congeals oh yeah when it's in the refrigerator you know, when you heat it up, it's like rich and aromatic mm. and so, so satisfying. Yeah. So that was it. It was Mimer soup yeah. and um, shit with beef bones. And then there were the holidays. The food wasn't memorable. The thing that I remember the best was leaving with doggy bags. Right, so we all had a little bit of Thanksgiving to take home, mm-hmm. and um, and then as we would drive away in their driveway my grandfather would throw small little pebbles at the car as a bye-bye i'm so sorry you're leaving <laughs> oh my god that's so cute but now that i think about that like it could pit the car it's why strange did you do that? it's strange but grandpas are strange i guess so i guess yeah. that's the thing that's that's very true was your family drinkers did, were they partiers nope okay no it was quite abstemious and my grandmother had um a jack daniels with a single rock, you know, which I remembered. And then, then that was my drink. Like one, you know, yeah. just one rock. It's like just one earring. You know what's true about families, though, that even if there isn't gourmet food or culinary expertise, there's something about the celebrations that we all remember. Hopefully. Yeah, Hopefully re- we remember, remember them in a positive way. I remember the rocks. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what I can tell you. Well, I don't know. I mean, and we'll get more into this later, but it is kind of a precursor for some other things that we are going to talk about later in terms of just kind of uh, making your own brand of celebration and just being authentic and different. And I think that throwing rocks at the car is a cute silly irreverent like it playful is. thing to do and it kind of speaks to knowing you your kind of personality you know so rocks yeah. um i mean it was it was very very sweet and he didn't want us to go yeah uh, and then the other you know the christmas <laughs> was ironically the other celebration it's ironic because we're jewish and um <laughs> so our celebration was chinese food which is classic yeah like there's an entire you know group of us new yorkers sure. who um you know chinese food for christmas it was Great. Yeah. Wait, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Manhattan. Oh, I didn't know that. For some reason, I had pictured that you grew up in, like, the seaside of Massachusetts or something. Definitely maybe, not. Maybe I've seen you wear, like, striped <laughs> tops. <laughs> I like that idea. I think I'd be pr- pretty mm-hmm. much a 100% different human. Yeah. Very, like, my um, entire family, when I was growing up, lived within sort of 50 miles of each other. Yeah. Very, very small family. And we all were very close. What part of Manhattan? Me. 
um, Upper East Side. Okay, cool. Did you guys do any of the traditional kind of Jewish food stuff like on the weekends or? That's why we. No, I don't think there were any locks in the house ever. We were more like Christmas Jews where you go have Chinese food. Okay, cool. Although my my grandmother on my father's side um, made a great gefilte fish, I think. And I say I think because I took one bite and I was like, oh, this is disgusting. (laughs) Um, But my father, you know, because it was a such a strong memory for him he has a great love had a great love of um gefilte fish yeah so your dad worked did he actually work down on wall street for real he worked on wall street for um a little bit and then he worked in midtown yeah were you guys close i love my dad my my i'm named for him so his name was daniel and my name's dina and um i think there had been another name on offer but it sort of eased away and I ended up um, Dana and it turned out it couldn't be more right I'm the youngest of three mm-hmm. and we we're all all three of us were extremely close to my father and he had so many facets to his personality and each one of us sort of tapped into one of my father's passions mm-hmm. so one brother tapped into his passion for um, real estate one brother tapped into his passion for um, stocks and stuff like that. And then I tapped into his passion for the arts. Interesting. In what way? What kind of arts? Like, what was he interested in most? My father w- was interested in photography, and he collected photography mid-century, uh, mostly American, although some European as well. Mm-hmm. And um, he had all kinds of collections of things. And we would go every Saturday and Sunday after I reached a certain age, and we would go to flea markets and we would go to antique shops, and the dustier, the better, because Ooh. he had an exceptional eye. So he could, you know, look at a table of stuff and find the one thing. Yeah. And he was very, very patient. So if he found something extraordinary, and the other person knew it was extraordinary, but nobody else in the world knew, he just waited it out. Mm-hmm. And he waited it out. And oh, at wow. some point, the, the shop owner would say, okay, you know, I guess... <laughs> I guess we'll come down on the price. He loved a bargain. Yeah. He sounds so special. Is he still with you? Is he still alive? No, he died about 27 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you're talking about that. I lost my dad too, as you know. And when you're describing your time with your dad, and I don't know if you felt this way with, with Grandpa Bobby, but um, there's something very special about a father-daughter bond if you have a good relationship with your dad um, because it's like non-competitive in a way. I think that's what most is striking me about why it is so special. There is something with mothers and daughters that's always going to be inherently complicated for a variety of reasons. That's another podcast. That's our side I, podcast. I was going to say, I, I can't wait to like yeah. find out more since you're doing this together. It doesn't seem competitive. No, but. but I mean, there's an inherent kind of thing about two women, you know, being in a close relationship like that, that I think... Well, you're, mother- bo- you're also in a relationship with dad, so there's somewhat of right. a triangle sometimes. Right, and I think that there's some, at least with my dad, and I think I've talked about this with a lot of other women who have close relationships with their fathers, it's a bond that is uncomplicated and can be very uncomplicated in a specific way and you can really I feel like look up to you know that's why if, I, if I, you're fortunate and it's well, a the, wonderful I'm, gift I'm saying if you yeah. have a good relationship yeah. with your father you know um, I don't know just the way you were talking about your dad reminded me a lot about my dad like that capacity to just be a good friend with someone and to admire them and you know they're the apple of your eye is that accurate yeah, we were we it was very uncomplicated which is so delightful yeah you know it wasn't it didn't feel fraught or heavy or yeah. ever angry 
um, it was very light. Yeah. And he wasn't always light as a, you know, as a person in his own world. But I think that also made our time very special together in that when we were together, you know, it was it was buoyant for both of us. And we weren't talking about stocks and bonds and we weren't going into the nitty gritty of whatever the business deal of the moment was. Um, I'm not sure that that would make it heavier for my brothers, but um, it, it was, I got to experience him at the times and places that he was most sort of fulfilled and joyful because it's exactly um, was his passions and the things that he was so excited to pursue. I mean, he actually loved his work as well, but we did get to spend this this time that was about just beauty, beautiful things and things that are like attract you as opposed to overthinking it like he wasn't trained at all he never took an art history class he never thought more than wow I really like that yeah um, I think it has a, an unseen value which is what he did in stocks so there was a parallel between the way that he thought about the stock market and the way he thought about art which was he was very interested in what was undervalued and what other people didn't appreciate yeah and um, and I think that that also translated to the way he thought about people, like other people in his life. He, he wasn't judgmental. He was incredibly open. So he, he wasn't interested particularly in status, where they came from. He just was really about, he was interested in intrinsic qualities. Yeah. How did you handle his passing? How old were you, first of all? I was 32. Okay. I think my math is probably wrong with it's really 30. Yeah, actually my yeah. math is right. So um, I was 32 and he got stomach cancer, uh, I guess when I was 29 or so. And then it went to his liver and then it went to his brain. So it was um, one of these, and I don't know, as you're like hearing stories and cancer stories, <clears throat> I think that this is a typical illness story which is that you know he he found out and there's an immediate drop down you know things mm-hmm. just got worse and visibly yeah. worse because they were okay before you thought they were okay before we didn't right. know um and then it plateaued and you're like oh my god this is amazing it's been handle this right exactly yeah. and then it was just a series of um step downs and step backs but most of that time as he stepped down and back, like, it's amazing. Like, yeah. he's still here, um, which was great until, you know, you get the final step, to the last one or two step down, step backs, where, like, oh, this is not good. And for him, that meant that um, I think he wasn't technically in a coma because that's a technical term that you would know more about, but he wasn't conscious. Yeah. And, um, and I'm like, oh, this isn't the thing where you see it's amazing. My mother, on the other hand, was just happy he was breathing. You know, wow. so for her, I think that step down was really okay too because he was still present. Yeah. Um, and then the by the time of the final step down, which is his death, um, you know, after three years, there's the feeling that, you know, that's lovely. It's like you're actually. It's almost as though you've been holding on to those metal stairs in the pool and you're stepping down and it's really cold and you you get warmer and warmer as you, and then you're up to your neck. And then the last is you just like release into this beautiful water. And you know, he was off to swim in this beautiful land. So, um, 
the question of how I dealt with his passing is more the question of diminution rather than passing. Yeah. Because the passing was positive. The passing was a release from this, like the bondage of a bed and being bloated <coughs> and tubes. Of course. Um, but the diminution um, was the thing was just so striking every time. Like, how horrible is this that he lost this ability or this capability or we lost this more, we lost time together we lost the potential to connect uh, but then you regain this little hope and you have this you know so um, that was such a so much sadness again losing someone who is so important to you and has bred confidence in you yeah. it, you know I think that's another father daughter thing I'm sure it happens father son sure but where their confidence becomes um, sort of intertwined with your own. They become, it becomes impossible to tell one from the other. Yeah, well, and it's also like some uh, someone who offers in a, in a good scenario where you have a good relationship, unconditional love. And it's very rare. We don't meet, I mean, meet lots of people in life that love us, but not tons of people who unconditionally love us. And so when one of those people goes away, it's, I think, pretty profound. And that's also why it's such an honor when you can help them in their transition. Um, there's a, a book that was written once by Stephen Levine, and it's called Meetings at the Edge. And I love that title. It's just that because they have no choice. They're going where they need to go. Like you said, it's that let go. But to be able to have the honor of being with them, were you able to spend time with him in the end? I spent, I spent lots of time with him. Um, and sometimes I would turn up to the apartment, you know, all ready for dinner or just being together. And it was really overwhelming. And I would get to my parents' house, apartment, Manhattan, um, <laughs> and just go to my room and like go to sleep for half an hour. Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> and then, seriously. And then come back and you know spend a great time with him. You mean go to your old room? We go to my old there? room. Yes, yeah. exactly, which didn't look like my <laughs> old my father again because he loved collecting things. Had completely transformed my room. When I grew up there, I had a corkboard wall with um, posters of uh, sunsets and rock stars. Which rock stars? Oh, please, you don't want to know. <laughs> I kind of um, do. Yeah, you probably do, but I don't want to tell you. Uh, it's like my music history was weak then and um, laughable now. But I did have like Fiorucci, which is a okay. band that yeah. um, I'm proud to say it was on my wall. Very cool. Very cool. Um, anyway, but my father replaced it with um, smoked mirrors uh, that were squares, but he turned them on their edge so they were... Uh, diamonds so the entire back wall of my bedroom was these smoky diamonds wow and then he got this uh, 1950s parchment bed set and uh it i really you would lie down and feel like a movie star wow the only thing i was missing was the pink set how nice that's amazing no not comfortable to go escape from the sadness of your father to cry but of course you brought up a great point which is that when you went there, you could be present, and then you had to be off a little bit. I call that the turtle principle. It's like the turtle, how you know, pulls their shell up, and then when you're ready, you stick your head out. So you had to go in and out, and that's often how we have to approach grief and loss. Yeah, it's a lot. It's very yeah. heavy. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to go just rewind for a minute because I had a really different experience actually, and I think it's. You were saying that when you, when he finally did pass, that that was. A, you know, it felt like a relief because he was out of his pain, and I had the same experience with my dad in some 
way because my dad also had cancer and a very painful death. And I had anticipated for years, for 10 years while he was sick, feeling that way, that when he's finally out of it, that will be how I reconcile this grief is that he will feel better. He'll be out of his pain. I will be out of, you know, selfishly be out of the pain of looking after him and then worrying about him. Um, personally, like, I didn't feel that as much as I, as I had anticipated I would. And I always, like, even to this day, really wish I could have felt it more. And I, I, I felt more confused. Did you have any confusion? I was like, how, where are you? Have you felt that way? You lost Absolutely. both your parents. There's some feeling about, for me, the, the, it was the opposite. I was just like, where are you? What happened? This well, it's is like the same thing children ask when they deal with loss. It's like, well, what happened? Where'd they go? We ask the same things, except yeah. we don't put it in the same way. Did, but we feel that same feeling. Like, yeah. where could they go? How could this be? Did you have any of that attached to the feelings of also just being, you know, happy that he was in a better kind of, out of his pain? I get, but I feel like the... Um, for me, the sense of relief was on his behalf. Yeah. Right? That for him, he let go of the, the stairs, whatever. Yeah. Um, but for me, I didn't feel so confused because it was quite literal. You know yeah. I mean? He was like right there. Yeah. And then he wasn't. And, you know, there's also, as you know, so much like, is it going to be a day? Is it going to be a week? Is it two weeks? And there's a very sure. strange countdown yeah. um, that prepares you in a perverse way. You're like, oh, didn't happen today. I guess it's going to happen tomorrow. Yep. Uh, so I didn't feel confused because I felt very prepared. Mm. And I relief isn't the feeling that I would say that I felt. I felt not a dramatic sense of mourning because I'd mourned for three years right. from diagnosis to the sort of medical coma, whatever that's called. Yeah. Um, mourning, 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 yeah. mourning. And I actually felt a little bit mourned out. I yeah. had that same experience. I had grieved so many times with my dad because I lived, he lived in Florida and I lived in New York. And every time I'd leave him, I'd grieve again as if I'd never see him again. So when it finally happened, there was almost an, an elation or a lift that I felt. It was an unusual. I was surprised by the lift. Yeah. But still, that disappearing of somebody yeah. is a very profound thing. Yeah, the disappearing is yeah. what it finally is. Yeah. Um, was there a shiva that you had? I was just going to ask the family? same question. Yeah. Of course, because you want to get... related. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you just want to get back to food. Um, <laughs> We're also very interested in the rituals that go yeah. on. Yeah. Right, so we didn't have a shiva, because um, like I said, Christmas Jews. Yeah. Um, but we did have people over to the house, and... Um, my memory of that has is so um, small, you know. Mm. I mean, everything up to that. The um, we had a beautiful, beautiful service for him um, at a temple that's so grand it feels like a you know a church in France. Yeah. Um, and that moment, which is when you get to sort of talk to people and hear their stories. I think it for me it was a little bit like la 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 like I don't the I didn't care so much about food at the moment I was 32 um, as you now know I didn't really grow up caring a whole lot about food so we ate I still remember going out to dinner with my brothers at a restaurant nearby just like a hole in the wall that we'd never been to yeah. down a couple of stairs had a burger meal we never had and Feeling a 
a sense of uh, a sense of closure of some kind. But it wasn't as though people brought casseroles, and I wasn't living at home. So right. uh, the the thing that I valued so much, and I hold in my mind just to be sure that I show up for others in the same way, is I loved the cards. Mm-hmm. I loved yeah. the physical cards, and I loved emails, and I loved it when people could say, sure. I mean, there was a lot of, I'm so sorry for your loss, which is fine. But there are also a lot of people who had great memories of my father. Wonderful, yeah. And it, friends of mine who had known him for 10 years or 20 years, I loved those. Yeah. I loved reading these moments that they remember so clearly that I had forgotten because that's just, it was just part of my everyday life. But for someone visiting us, you know, that was their, like, one hour with my dad. Right. And so you nourished yourself. That was a nourishment in itself, right? To hear all those things, yeah, I stories. Lo- I loved them. I really yeah. did. And so... Now, when I think about you know other people and their um, their families and people going through grief, I try to remember those things that connected me to them and connected me to the person that they've lost and connects them to the person that they lost, because that's it was just so meaningful to me. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody wants to feel useful in a crisis and in sadness, right? And it's interesting to me how different people. Uh, make themselves feel useful and how they show up, you know, and I feel like some people feel scared to show up. Some people don't know how to do it. Some people, and then there's like some basic camps. There's the food camp and then there's kind of the gesture or the writing camp. Um, and they're both so valuable in different ways, right? Like you don't keep the casserole for 25 years and look back on it, but when you really needed it, when you were like so upset and couldn't do anything and someone showed up and they're like, here's a warm lasagna. I made it, you know, like, that was your lasagna. Take it <laughs> I mean, lasagna, just <laughs> theoretically, it could have been lasagna, could have been a funeral potatoes, whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think that's, it's just interesting. It speaks a lot to just people and not, I don't, I don't always just think it's that, that it's people who are good cooks that bring casseroles or people that are great writers who write cards, you know, um, people always, trying to connect. Yeah. yeah. I, I value the people with great memories because mine yeah. is very selective. I think all of our memories are selective yeah. and um, I love hearing that selection and Exactly to your point, I still have my box of cards, and yeah. I can go back to them, unlike the casserole, and I probably, because my memory's not as great, I'm like, so you brought me a casserole, yeah. really? <laughs> you remember that? I don't remember that, but that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I know that meant a lot to me at the time. <laughs> exactly. And you know, what's interesting about food and grief is that it's not always that you remember a great meal or a way to celebrate the person you love. Sometimes you're not eating. Sometimes you're not hungry. Sometimes there's an absence of that, so it's not yeah. always just that food is a celebration of, of even loss. It's Right. It can just be a way of touch. I was just yeah. reading. Have you, have you read uh, The Year of Magical Thinking, Joan Didion? I have read it. I've read it like twice. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I just read it and it really touched me and I was found myself really at moments weeping and laughing and there was the, you, and you read it as well. Um, the, there was a time when she was talking about right after her husband passed, only being able to eat a little bit of kanji and just thinking about that warm, you know, and just the friend who reminded her, like, hey, you know, maybe a little kanji today. So sometimes it's just about kind of staying nourished and alive. This episode is presented by Restaurant Workers Community Foundation an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. RWCF addresses quality of life issues that disproportionately affect restaurant workers, such as wage fairness, gender equity, racial justice, 
immigrant rights, mental health, and substance abuse. Learn more about advocacy, grant making, and impact investing by RWCF at restaurantworkerscf.org. To jump forward a bit, um, <laughs> so you were the editor and chief of Food and Wine magazine for 16 years? 21. 21 years! That's what I, I was just making sure that you remembered how <laughs> yeah, long you I worked just, there. You wanted to make it so that I could make it bigger <laughs> than what you said. So you were there for a month or two. What was that like? Um, no, no. I mean, it's an amazing feat. And I, uh, being someone who didn't have a, you know, I think anyone who heard that you were the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine for 21 years would have assumed that you grew up in food, immersed in this culture where you're like, oh, you know, at home we had all these things. How did coming from a home that didn't have a lot of, where food wasn't a maybe main focus, how did you end up with this amazing career in food? I ended up with the amazing food career through magazines. Yeah. I graduated from college and I went immediately uh, to Vogue magazine. Oh. And after, um, after Vogue, I went to House and Garden. And after House and Garden, I went to Mademoiselle. And by the time I'd been at those three magazines, I felt 100% um, ready to take on any lifestyle magazine, like mm-hmm. anything that was going to be about the way that we experience pleasure. So um, fashion is pleasure, home is pleasure, sure. food and wine are pleasure. Um, travel is pleasure, and travel is a part of travel, design, all this. They're all a part of each other. It's all kind of mixed up. So when I went to Food and Wine, I was pretty good at making reservations. You know, I kept <laughs> like slight tabs on what was going on in the restaurant world, but as you can imagine, so that would be 1994. Yeah. I like applied for the job in 93. Um, there wasn't the food scene that there is. I mean, there weren't oh, yeah. the choices. Like, there was. Being on top of the food scene was like knowing that, you know, two restaurants were opening sure. in the next six months. Yeah. And there was no competition for it because no one else really cared. And so much of what had been going on in food was really around uh, extraordinary cooks um, and people making, you know, like doing great cookbooks, uh, the very, 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 very beginning of cooking shows. And I don't mean to diminish the food scene but there just wasn't that much like yeah, you know Bobby Flay had just started um, you know like at a s- small restaurant and he was, he was either at Mesa Grill or Bolo and mm-hmm. I mean these the people who are so iconic now yeah. they, were, they were babies back then babies, yeah. babies so even though I didn't have a great food education I had a great magazine education and a lot of confidence that I could connect and speak to the audience who are the people who are buying that magazine, which is really what it was about, right? So who is your audience? What do they care about? And how can you feed them? Yeah, that's very important. So being at a job for that long, you're obviously going to bond with your employees. And did it feel like the people who were at Food & Wine were like family to you? Did you forge those kind of relationships? Did you get, as the boss, were you able to get close with people in that way? I love my team. I mean, love, love capital, like all capital letters with like, you know, lines out of it exclamation point explosive um yes and in fact you know i had a um there were a group of people who were there when i started and they were amazing the managing editor mary ellen ward uh continued to be the managing editor till i left and she was there after i left 
And she's the godmother to my kids. Oh, my gosh. The food editor had been there for quite some time before, and I gave her, you know, I promoted her and promoted her, Tina Ulaki. Uh, she was executive food editor when I left. So the, Pam Kaufman, who was um, a junior editor and got promoted to executive editor. So some of these people um, were there really with me all 21 years. Kate Crater, wow. who was the... Um, she was an editor, but by the end was Food and Wine's restaurant editor. Mm-hmm. So 21 years. So so we spent a lot of time together. And then so many people who came like at the midpoint or along the way, who I still consider incredibly close to me. And uh, it was really, for many of us, very familial, yeah. very supportive. Did you feel like being at the helm that you were kind of the mom figure? Did you feel like you had to look out for people in that way, that you had to take responsibility for their feelings and emotions outside of a prof- in, of it being in a professional realm. Um, it's funny because I don't really, I mean, I moms traditionally like are that nurturing. I think my mother was more like, um, auntie Mame, like oh. she's, you know, she's fabulous yeah. and she's so much fun and she's Love a part, like she's the party girl, which is, you know, not exactly my thing, yeah. but I just felt incredibly connected to them and I wanted them to do like, every individual want to encourage them to to do their best and know that at the end of the day though it seemed like I thwarted them because I was a control freak <laughs> my job really was to help them rise yeah well I asked that because while you were at food and wine you were diagnosed with breast cancer and you we you know you've told me about this a bit and I we both also read something that you wrote for Oprah magazine um and I'm I'm kind of asking these other questions because you had a really interesting way of kind of coming out to your staff about your diagnosis with cancer. So can you just tell us a little bit about that and your you know what what it was all about and your reasoning, etc. So um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2008, and so I had been the editor of Food and Wine for a chunk of time. So mm-hmm. it was. like 14 years or something. And and so I knew that team quite well, but there's always people who came and went. So the announcement that I made, I mean, I had to make a decision. Was I going to tell everybody? I didn't necessarily have to. Um, Although I did have chemo and I did have a bunch of surgeries and I felt like losing my hair would be a big tip off. My energy level would be a tip off. Things I could and couldn't do might be a a tip off. And I... As a human, incredibly transparent. Like, I don't feel like that was something I needed to hide. I didn't feel like I needed to pretend that everything was okay. Otherwise, I would be doubted or things would be taken away from me. And I was in a very privileged position in that I'd been at the magazine and the magazine had been very strong. So I felt like I was coming at it from a position of um, confidence. So the question was... How do you tell all these people if you decide, as I did, that I want them to know? And I, one option was you tell people group by group, like you take the copy department or you take the art department. And I could have done that, and I did that on so many occasions for so many other things. But this seemed like it would be better to tell everybody at once. And my goal was to make them realize that I wasn't scared, I wasn't going anywhere, and we were, it was really going to be okay. And I knew that people would be concerned for me, but simultaneously they would be concerned for themselves. 
not in a selfish, horrible way, but like, oh my God, she's such a control freak. Like now what's going to happen? Um, am I going to be able to do my job? Like how are things going to get approved? Is this going to be a bummer? Yeah. Like there are a lot of possible concerns and I wanted to allay them because to the best of my knowledge, when I got the diagnosis, I was like, that wasn't going to be me. It was going to be, it was going to all be good. And so I invited everybody into uh, a conference room and we had like a um, pink cupcakes and champagne party, pink champagne. <laughs> but I mean, luckily I was diagnosed in breast cancer awareness month. So it was go. awesome. <laughs> um, there's, and not that I couldn't have found pink cupcakes and pink champagne at other times, but it was just actually sort of funny timing. Yeah. And I was able to use the moment to also tell a mostly female staff that they should go get checked. Right, like wow. I, um, you know, I found the like the little tumor under my arm randomly. Like I had been to the, um, I'd been to the gynecologist. No, I'd gotten a, I'd um, gotten a scan like three months earlier. Like it was not a big amount of time difference. And I called Mary Ellen, who was the managing editor at the time, at eleven o'clock at night, and I found it and I took off my shirt and I. So, you know, I found this little thing. I'm sure it's nothing. And she's like, I'm sure it's nothing, too, because, like, 90% of all those little bumps, like, they're really nothing. But I think you should go to the doctor. And I was like, I hate doctors. And she's like, I think you should still go. So I called yeah. my um, gynecologist in the morning. I was like, oh, you know, very jovially. Like, I found this little thing, and I was just taking off my shirt. And they're like, call now. You need to get screened now. And I'm like, whoa, you people. Like, yeah. really? It's just, you know, I mean, it's yeah. fine. And yeah. I was just, I, you know, just was there and blah, blah, blah. And then I called, um, you know, the place where they do the tests and they're like, come in now. I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah. What, like, what's all the urgency? And then, um, you know, it turned out at, at that moment when I was there, they read the scan and they're like, yeah, it looks like you have cancer. We're, we're not sure. Wow. And I don't think they're really meant to tell you in a hallway. Oh. And as it happened, I had wa been walking across to go to the doctor and bumped into Mary Ellen, the one uh, just oh my randomly. Gosh. She came with me to the doctor. Whoa. I mean, to, you know, to the uh, whatever. And um, yeah, so she was right there. She was like there at the moment and it's just one of those times you just believe in fate like she really That's was incredible like walking at the exact same time that i happened to be going yeah That's well incredible. it sounds like you watch over other people so it was a wonderful thing that she was there to watch over you too yeah she was and i also i called yeah. i called so we we leave i tell her she's like oh my god she's more of a warrior than i am and then i called my husband from the street and he's like oh okay good to know and i got off the phone oh and, and i said to Mary Ellen, I, I don't think he understood. She's like, you weren't very clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was totally clear. She's like, you weren't very clear. You seem to be adamantly not a warrior. To like, is that true? Like, really not a warrior? Or um, it's I per, that's what I'm perceiving, but maybe it's just that in, like how you're outward facing, or, is, or are you actually really not a warrior in that way? I'm definitely not a warrior in that way. I worry about dumb stuff. Like, I have enormous travel anxiety uh -huh. like that like I worry about getting to this you know yeah. podcast on time sure. that makes me worry why do you think that is did was mom or dad like an over worrier and did you feel repelled because I have a parent <clears throat> who is a worrier and mm. it makes me 
an avid not worrier. So if there's like a storm coming, like a terrible category five hurricane, I'm like, that's fine. It's not going to be a big deal just because I need to go so far in the other direction. Is there any, was there a, a parent, was mom or dad a worrier? I love that. I come from a, um, a line of female warriors. Okay. So my, Same. my mother's totally, um, sorry mom, but she's totally a worrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandmother was a worrier. So there's three of us in a row and I don't, I can't speak for my grandmother, but my mother and I worry about small things Mm -hmm. and we both have very sunny dispositions on the bigger things. Right. Okay. Very interesting. So going back to food and wine, you throw this party, there's pink champagne, there's cupcakes. How is it received? People come in. What is it? I mean, (coughs) they were more upset than I was. Yeah. Um, But I think they were um, happy to know that it wasn't going to be like a, They were really on my side. They were incredibly supportive, um, incredibly dear. And I'm not going to say like throwing a party and saying you have cancer is great. I think they were really concerned for me. Um, but I think they're also happy to know. They took your lead. Exactly. And that was the, exactly, yeah. that was the goal, right? Yeah. To, to set the tone. Um, and one of the things that I really hated through the time of cancer, and it also relates to, you know, um, other at times when one could be grieving or bad things are happening, when people try to put themselves in your shoes, but they make it catastrophic, mm-hmm. like that must be terrible. Right. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time just saying, it's not terrible. Like it's not terrible. Right. Well, there's also the tilted head look, which I call. And what is that? Is somebody looks at you like <laughs> they have this look like, oh, it's so <laughs> upsetting. And you may be in a completely different place. Yeah. And it's, Right, like pick your head up. Annoying a little bit. Yeah. Right? Pick your head up. Yeah, get that head up. Um, when you were saying that about kind of needing to set the tone, that's a lot of responsibility. And like I can relate personally, and I don't know, I, you also ran a business too. There's something that's, you know, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I would think when I had to do things in a similar way, not nearly as, uh, you know, big as telling my staff that I had cancer, but there's sometimes when being in charge and feeling like there was just something I really connected with when you just said that, like I had to set the tone. Whereas like another woman might be able to just go into work and not tell anyone or just not have, not have to be responsible for everybody's interpretation of your own, cri- you know, crisis and health concern. And it's, it's a lot. Did it feel like a lot to you? No, I mean, I, I actually look at it differently, which is um, it was selfish in a way, right? Cause I just didn't want to have to fake anything and mm-hmm. I didn't, I wanted to have people worry as little as possible because I thought that was going to be the burden. Right. I don't find telling them a burden at all. I find the burden would be if it was a secret or if I had to, you know, every day worry about their reaction or like, do they wonder or that kind of thing. Sure. It says a lot about you that you really do think you're other focused. You do think about how other people feel. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and well, it's both. I, it was me because I was like, I don't want to, I don't want you guys to worry because then I'm going to worry about you guys yeah, worrying. I, I, sure. hear, I hear that part. Right. And yeah. you, you know, you also need to maintain your own sense of homeostasis, which for a lot of people is just keeping a positive frame, you know, being like, I, it's going to be fine. And just having to tell yourself that even then, you know, when you don't really know. Right. Um, I was with somebody last night who was there and he happened to mention that it was one of like the most significant moments and that he had said that he didn't have any experience with people 
uh, being that open about crisis that that's happening in their life. And then it really kind of was a really important moment for him in his life and being able to deal head on with someone saying, hey, I have this thing going on, being open about it. And he said it was one of the more significant kind of moments in his life and being able to kind of cope with that kind of stuff. So Which may not have been something that. you thought about, but that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 What were some of the other ways that you supported yourself during that time and things that helped you during that difficult time? Well, you know, the theme of um, parties stuck with me and the theme of simultaneously getting support and spreading joy. So I had a series of parties um, that marked occasions. I didn't do what some people do, which is tons of research. Like, that wasn't my thing. I found a couple of great doctors I loved them, Mm -hmm. and um, that freed up my mind (laughs) to do other things, but I did talk to a few people, and they gave me a few pointers, and one of the pointers was, it's good to mark different moments in your journey, and so one moment in the journey is the halfway point for chemo, because chemo on the ramp up is pretty pretty brutal, and when you see 50% lying ahead of you, it's like, ugh, God, do I really have so much left? Yeah. Uh, so I had a party, and um, I had a party. You know, when you get when life gives you lemons, make lemon meringue pie. Mm-hmm. And um, we had it at my mother's. My mother, as I said, loves a party. She's a great <laughs> party thrower, and she was very enthusiastic about this um, okay. event. And we ha- we all like. I had a bunch of people over. We ate a bunch of pie, and also I, I love communicating and connecting with people. It was like a little bit lighter on the um, sort of email back then. Mm-hmm. There wasn't texting. I mean, I feel like now I'm in touch with like my good friends around the world like once a week. Yeah. But it was less so then, I'd say. Because, you know, it's now it's a while ago. So being able to have everybody in one room take the burden of like not having the one-on-one emails. I mean, people would sort of email to check in on me, but then what they really would do is they would talk to Mary Ellen um, and ask her how I was doing or ask like anyone in my circle, how was I doing? So they didn't bother me, um, but they wanted to know. And so getting everybody in one place to just be like, say hi and eat pie. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then because I also like a party and I also like um, events, so I made T-shirts and I made um, I made napkins that I still um, I still have I still have the, the T-shirts. There's men's sizes, women's sizes. What did it say? <laughs> um, life is pie. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. It's being able to pour yourself into something. It was it was know. so much fun, and yeah. because I was at Food and Wine, I um, I had an art department and I picked the font and you know like we could design it with ease and then I had someone who could help me execute it, which I don't like execution. I'm not always so great at. Um, So, you know, making the napkins and that was, it was really, really fun. Um, And again, people could leave with a piece of, well, me, but this notion of Mm -hmm. um, it's all good. Of your healing, of a positive thing. And also the synergy. You know, there's something to be said about synergy and everybody being in a room thinking the same thing at the same time is very powerful. That was, um, so that was a good party. And I had a bunch more. I had a, a soul sister party because um, I had a double mastectomy. And, uh, you know, just talking, getting 
I happen to love fried chicken. I mean, Ooh, I was very lucky yeah. in that some people lose their appetite. I didn't lose my appetite. Okay. I ate like all the way through and I didn't do, I didn't like that research thing. I didn't research the foods I'm supposed to eat. Yeah. Um, I didn't research things I should stay away from. I feel like fried foods would fall in there. But I really <laughs> like fried food and yeah. um, I love a piece of fried chicken and I'm not going to do it every day. So totally. we had a, um, fried chicken party at Tina, the executive food editors, at her house. Nice. And um, it was all all girls, all women, and that was really fun too because it's like an intimate thing talking about your boobs. Yeah. Now I feel like people talk about their boobs all the time. <laughs> yeah, boobs are very <laughs> out in the open. They're so out yeah. in the open right now. Boob this, boob that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me show you. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that was a, a great party, but I I think that my two favorite parties were the lemon meringue pie party and the the closing party the finale party which was a wishing well party oh tell us about that and i really wanted to um like at the time i felt like i should take over the greeting card um industry <laughs> because it really bothered me i would get these cards that from people that are like wish you know feel better soon. Sure. And like, okay, <laughs> that's so annoying. Yeah. I mean, what happens if this was terminal cancer? Like, why of aren't course. there cards out there that are funny, that yeah. are supportive, that like right. hit all these other notes aside from get better. Yeah. That are real. Right. <laughs> are, yeah. Like, maybe right. you won't get better, but if you, but right now I hope that you find a little bit of peace right. with and this, then a knock-knock joke. With, with, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, a crocodile and a pineapple. Exactly. I mean, you know, whatever. Side business? I just while we're at it. This yeah. sounds like a perfect side business for so us. That's three. what I that's what I was thinking. Yeah. And then um because, you know, uh editors love to think in sort of publishing terms, I was like, Oh, I know. I wanna have a wishing like I want people to wish me well and then I want to um wish others well and I want to make wishes all together. <clears throat> yeah. So um, I had a I had a wishing well party, and everybody and again I went to town on the like the tchotchkes. Like everybody <laughs> got a wishbone, oh, um, a little wishbone on a thread. Um, Alessandra, um, who was my assistant at the time, like you know found all of the like found the thread and the wishbones. Beautiful. And, um, and, Every, and everyone got to do these things. It was the making of it that helped heal everybody. Um, I like thinking of, thinking of it that way, and then everybody had to write like well wishes on a um, on a little tag, and then we hung the tag on a tree, and oh, so that wow. everybody could like read everybody's wishes, and you could have as many wishes as you wanted, and um, and again, it was just great to gather everybody and say, for now, you know, it's over. I don't know. I can't pretend to predict the future, yeah, but. Um, I also did um, a card, thank you art department, uh, that was thanking everybody who had wished me well. Yeah. So many people had done so many extraordinary things from you know, um, sending food to uh, you know, zip up sweaters like for after surgery or bandanas or stopping by or bad magazines or Julia Child. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, the person you saw last night sent me um, CDs. Oh, which is amazing because it's not like he was one of my five closest friends. It's sort of extraordinary. Yeah, uh, he's very thoughtful though. So yeah. uh, anyway, just all of these, and not that I was counting it up, but a thank you to the doctors, and just this one place to put all these thank yous for all these amazing uh, ways in which people had made my life better over the last year, because it's sort of a year, 
And the other thing that I was thinking with doing the wishing well card was that people don't know what to do, right? Everyone's sort of stumped. Yep. Um, I'm, I find myself stumped because I want to do the perfect thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I want to do the yeah. right thing. And I want it to be very me. Anyway, the card gave, you know, 30 different things that you can do to support your friends, except it was what someone had done for me. Yeah. People gave me crystals. People gave me like this weird thing you put on your toes to separate them. It's like yoga toes. <laughs> I don't know. But like all these things. Um, yeah. that, And I've had people say after that, like they use that as sort of a guide for gift giving for people who are going through tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, you know, you're just a very outward person. You're very magnetic. You're lively. You're full of life. You have so much enthusiasm and you're definitely the kind of person who reaches out and thinks about other people. Just knowing you, how I know you, I, I already know that about you and Thank it's you. wonderful. And it's also just very important to be able to some to be someone that can be strong because I'm sure that there must have been grief and scaredness in there somewhere you know even if you were pushing it away or you were like keeping a positive attitude I would have to imagine you know cancer is scary and there's a possibility that you could not make it at even if you're not thinking of it like that somewhere we know that's possible maybe you didn't well I'm just saying like um I think it's very big of you, probably more than you even give yourself credit for, to be that kind of person who can do these things. Because while I know that it probably benefited you and it felt good and it was a way to like process what was going, what you were going through, people remember those things really, you know, in a very significant way. And it's empowering when we find ourselves not just, you know, if someone else is diagnosed with cancer, but if you're broken up with, if you lose your job, if you break your ankle, if you know, just remembering that there was someone who was like, oh, this doesn't have to be all this way, right. you know? Like, it can... It teaches us how to deal with the struggles of life. Yeah, and I and learned the, that from you, actually, yeah. too, because this is something, a long-standing tradition in our family of celebrating through pain. Well, I remember, just an interjection, um, Zara had a very serious accident once, and she had some surgeries, and we were in San Diego, and it was quite a difficult time for us. And her and I got in a convertible, and with a big cast on her arm, we were driving around San Diego, looking at all the sights, eating up things, yeah. and it was our way of dealing with it. I see it as um, kind of conjuring up spirit in a way. I think what you're talking about is you created spirit, and you brought everybody's spirit together, with which helped your spirit, which helped their spirit. And it's what we have to do sometimes in tragedies because or difficulties, because our spirit can be challenged. And that's absolutely. But I just think there's like, there really is just different people in the world. We're all born with a different pinch of this and pinch of that. And in ways that like, no matter how hard you study or try to be a certain way, you're not going to be. And being exactly. someone like who you are, this is innate for you. You're, you're just full of life and you're just a natural, you're a leader and you're, and, and you're a guide. And it's, it's profound. I'm sure to the people who were around you at this time. That's, it's kind of you to say, but what you're just saying resonates with me so much because I feel like it just was all within me. It wasn't work to do that. And I feel um, when people say you'd get these emails that said, you're so strong. I'm sure you're going to conquer it. And I'm like, 
screw you. Like it has actually nothing to do with strength. It happens that I have great surgeons yeah. and medicine has come this far that I am going to be fine. Yeah. It doesn't really have to do with my inner, like my inner strength isn't going to cure cancer. Sure. And so I really resented that. Mm. Um, on the flip side, um, I felt like it was this thing inside of me that is not something that I, I mean, maybe I cultivated, but it's very natural to be positive. And I feel like if you're not the person who is naturally very positive, it's actually excruciating to need to be positive. Yeah. Because, again, when people say, well, just think positive thoughts. Yeah. And like, you just want to shoot them. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I got Fuck lucky. Off. I mean, I have, I've had more, prob- more trouble, more emotional, like, ajita over, like, trying to figure out what the next great passion project is for me mm-hmm. than I had with cancer, which makes me crazy. Yeah. I'm like, cancer, fine. Yeah. Like, no problem. <laughs> Throw some parties, get some people together. Right. And, it, and like, it sucked and I felt sick and tired and I didn't want to get up and sometimes I just curled up and I was moany and groany and like, yeah. you know, it's, it was bad and my head was under a pillow and I did have two little kids so it wasn't under a pillow too much. Yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful for my job. I'm so grateful for my husband, my friends, and my kids so that, like, I didn't spend a lot of time under a pillow. Um, but then you have something that just seems like, who cares if you have a job? Like, it doesn't even matter. Right. And that can, like, hit you, like, a very strong wave, and you're in the sand, and, like, it's in your bikini bottom. You're like, had that happen? Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you were just saying that. You're like, cancer, I could deal with that, and I could do that, but not knowing what I want to do in life. Is it at all about, it just hit me that, is it at all about control? Cancer is kind of out of your control. It's either in the hands of your in your physical makeup or your doctors or your surgeons. Um, and with, you know, your future and where your career is going, like that's within you. And I, is the frustration at all there lying with like, you know, this is something you can do about. You can't do anything about cancer, but you can do something choose. about. You can't choose cancer, but you can right. choose what you do with your life. You can choose what you can do with your life, but you should also really be able to choose how you address the fact that, you know, you're not sure what you're going to do with your life. Yeah, of course. So, so there's a famous saying, which is that, you know, basically that we cannot control what happens outside of us, but how we choose to view what happens. And that's the choice we have. That's our greatest freedom is in our choice of how we view it. So that's the thing that's so irritating, mm-hmm. like to have to work so hard for the internal mind to be complete, oh. completely... <laughs> accepting that was a a greater challenge like to make my internal mind just calm down yeah um and was it because i have so much more control um i think it might be because the options seem so wide open yeah you know it just you know one thing i've come to also realize is that when we have kids and in your case you didn't just have your two kids you had all the kids at work when we have kids, there's a whole different feeling. You have to think about how other people are feeling going through what you are. You can't be quite as self-centered as you might be in other situations. Yeah. So I think it's a great thing. I yeah. mean, I think that people in, you know, and maybe that's just my weird take on it, but it was great for me to, you know, have people to be responsible to, responsible for. Um, it was very as opposed to that being a drain, like, oh my God, I have people that I have to worry about. I'm like, yeah. I have people I get to worry of about. Course. It's great. Totally. It takes you outside of yourself a yeah, little bit. Good. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you could make yourself, we're winding down here and, 
if you could make yourself, this is a question we ask everybody, um, something uh, to nurture yourself at the time when you were kind of going through some of your biggest hurt, whether it was after your dad's death or during your battle with cancer, uh, what would it be? What would you make yourself to soothe yourself? I mean, the honest to God answer is like mac and cheese. You okay. Know? Like just yeah. super unhealthy. I love cheese. Mm. I like pasta. Um, or I would take your lasagna any day if you sent it my way. <laughs> That's very sweet. Um, but, you know, like a more subtle, like wrap up the show answers. Like my grandmother's soup is really soothing. It brings me to a place in my childhood where I was taken care of. And someday I feel like I could learn to make that. Like I still remember the bottom of that soup had all the like something with the bone marrow, like the brown yeah. marrow from the bones. And like she put the time into the dice of the carrot mm. and the dice of the celery. And then those like yellow skinny noodles. Yeah. And I just, that's the more subtle answer, but really just give me some hot mac and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> you know, soup is like, to me, I use the word ritual a lot because to me ritual is a, a working through of things. And to me, making soup is like a ritual. And I think of, have you made bone broth before? Uh, like I said, I, I tried. I yeah. really don't know what I did wrong. Um, I like I put a whole chicken carcass in, and I put a bunch of water, and I put a bunch of aromatics, and it really tasted like water with aromatics. Well, it, it helps Zara's, to roast. Yeah. The, the, helps to roast yeah, the bones and veggies first. Zara, yeah. tell us about your bone broth, because when Zara makes bone broth, it is such a ritual. It's not just the roasting, which you're going to describe, but it's she throws in everything, and it cooks for 24 hours on the stove mm. in this big pot, and it has to be at a certain temperature. And the smell in the house and the way the gelatinous form that it takes. Yeah. So tell us how you make your broth. Well, actually, it's funny that you that you ask because yesterday I made a huge pot of chicken bone broth and it was simmering and simmering and simmering like all day long. And then I took out the bones and the veggies. I'm like, I want to reduce this a little bit more. And I had just been out to Frank's Wine Bar and had a couple glasses of wine and chatting with a friend. And I was like, I'm just going to close my eyes for a minute. And so I, <laughs> I closed my eyes. I woke up oh. at 2 in the morning. There's like a cup of broth left. But <laughs> It is the richest broth that anyone has ever had. I'm glad I didn't burn the freaking house down. Anyway, I'm kind of, you know, the way I like to cook, I am i don't do anything perfectly. I actually have, I, I get a lot out of cooking with just my, I don't know, I don't want to say from the heart because it's kind of a cliche, but I'll grab, I'll grab at things. I'll snatch and grab. So when I make broth, I kind of just make sure to roast everything. I get things that make sense. I try not to put too much greenery in there because then it makes it muddy and green. Um, but like celery bottoms, I'll try to stay away from parsley, but I'll throw in sage and rosemary. And just like let everything really boil down. Uh, well, you put oranges in oh, there. Oh, yeah, I'll put oranges. You had gone to, we had gone to the Asian store and you right. put, you put um, fish, uh, shrimp, little dried babies, dried shrimp. shrimp. Yep. Anything, I mean, I think there's something very beautiful and uh, cathartic about making a broth. It makes me feel like a witch, which it's, I love. It's like that. It's exactly, yeah. I was sick at the time and I could only have broth. And she made it with so much love in it. And yeah. it was a witch's broth. It was wonderful. Yeah. A healing witch's broth. Yeah. Soup is, soup yeah. is great. Do you have any advice for anyone out there who is going through a time where they feel overwhelmed by any kind of either heartbreak or a diagnosis with an illness or anything to give them some kind of ability to not not strength like strength to get through but just any advice for kind of i don't know anti-maiming it as you you mentioned anti-maim before the amazing <laughs> our heroine our patron saint the woman who kind of smiled with a glass of champagne through everything 
Do you feel like you can offer advice or is it just innate to kind of maim yourself during, and not maim that way, (laughs) anti-maim yourself during times of crisis? I actually think that in a time of crisis, it's a time to find the essence of who you are. For me, it was that thing of wanting to throw a party and wanting to get everybody together. I think that's such an imposition um, on people and I the most important thing to fight against is doing what other people tell you like it's going to make you you're going to feel better if you throw a party like right. you may you may not sure. um so i feel like it's spending time with yourself i really love lists mm. and coming up with a list of the things that you you yourself without other people's suggestions what you yourself feel would make you feel better mm. uh because no one knows what to do. You can only do it for yourself. And then actually doing what's on that list, if that means like you put on the list, I would feel better if I took a walk in the sand. Then yeah. you should like find a way to do that. If it's that you don't want to talk to anybody, then find someone who will be the intermediary for you. If it's that you are you never want to cook for the next four weeks, <laughs> then you know there's a way to go on a site and like have everyone wants to do something for you write down exactly what you want this should be the time that you like if it's a breakup if it's grief if it's cancer anything like you should take care of yourself but it's not like you should go and sit in a bathtub with a candle unless that's the thing that really does it for you yeah and put that on your list but um and i say to make a list because you forget you're like halfway through and totally. you feel crappy and you're crying and you're like nothing's gonna make it better like, oh but when i was that's a better, wonderful idea there was a list fantastic yeah. idea amazing to make the list in a moment where you go into your right brain and you just write and write and write all the different things and then you can look back on it yeah excellent that's great advice well uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I know that, you know, being vulnerable, you're very open and that's amazing. Being vulnerable is a big ask and we are so like honored that you would come on and be vulnerable and share your story and um, your experiences with grief and your, I mean, whether or not you grew up with food in your house or you think you're a good cook or not, you're one of the most influential and important people in food and just to hear about your experiences with that and uh, in regards to grief and how you celebrated through it. Um, My big takeaway from this was about the value of celebration through food and drink in times of crisis. Because you could do that, right? Yeah, I can do that. But I I just really, I really, I really dig you. I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan. (laughs) And uh, yeah. And I hope this podcast, which is going out hopefully to many, many people that, you know, they'll also be inspired by so many of the things you said today. Thank you so much for your openness. Well, it's great to be here. Um, as you both know, I spend time on the other side, the questioning side of the mic. So I'm very much in uh, in awe of your questioning style. Bravo. <laughs> Thank you. And, um, and I think it's so important to find people who are willing to be vulnerable because so many people find themselves in that position but don't know where to go. Yeah. And so you guys doing this podcast, I think is a great, uh, it will be an entertainment, but also a great service to... Uh, people who are listening. Um, so yeah, people who love this podcast, you should go on um, Apple Podcast, rate and review it, subscribe to it, and you can find more ways to cope through grief, but also meet some really, really interesting people. Thanks, Dana. And where can we find you? How do we listen to your podcast? Can you just remind everyone what it's called, how, how we find you, how we stay in touch with what you're doing? I have a podcast called Speaking Broadly, which 
uh, in which I interview people who have gone through challenges and successes. Um, it is women-focused, but I have begun to interview people who help each other on their journeys and successes, not focusing only on women, which has been an interesting sort of mm. pivot. Yeah. <coughs> and so you can um, find me on Instagram, and same thing with Apple, um, Apple Podcast. And both Zara and I are on HRN, um, our host, which we love, and it's not just for the pizza. Yep, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Although that is perk. <laughs> cool, guys. Bobby, you're amazing. I love you so much. It's always a pleasure to do this podcast with you. Great honor. Thanks for being you. Dana was amazing. I really loved our conversation with her. And I think like all our conversations and uh, interviews that we're doing with folks are so dynamic and, and diverse. And what I really took out of this conversation, I know about you, is that Dana has such a optimistic, keep going, very energetic, lively take on grieving, on life. Not to say that she's not intense and and serious in some way but she's very i don't know i just find her to be a very optimistic person she has the qualities of a resilient human being yeah she really does yeah. and a leader which is and what, a leader which we were talking about a lot in her episode is being a leader and a lot of that is about putting on a strong face and a happy face and a, a level of optimism because honestly if you don't it's very hard to get anything done being strong for others correct yeah almost leading the way of how to respond in a situation Right. And I think a lot of the times that people who are in that position don't even necessarily fully realize that you just have to be that way. Right. Otherwise, nothing really gets done. Um, anyway, I love Dana very much. She's a very special person. And I uh, I'm just glad to have her in the world and in in my world. She's wonderful. Um, OK, so one thing that Dana talked about that I loved mm-hmm. of the many things she talked about that I loved was her uh, lemon meringue, make lemon when life gives you lemons, make lemon meringue pie. Yes. Party that she had to celebrate mm-hmm. her halfway being halfway finished with chemotherapy yes. when she had breast cancer. Um, what did you what did you make of the of her celebrating throughout grief? Because I know that's something that you're very into and that you do as well. So that is how, correct. Yeah. Well, I learned, as we've talked about in other um, episodes, we learned that from your grandmother, my mother, who had so many losses in her life and yet could squeal and squeak and celebrate and love and, and really have joy. I could never understand when I look back how my mom, who was a Holocaust survivor, had lost her mother when she was eight, lost a 16-year-old daughter tragically, amidst other kinds of losses, and still she could have such joy. Yeah. So I do celebrate that. You, you and I saw that, that in Dana, yeah. of course. Yeah, she definitely had yeah. that. She's in that club with us, for you bet. sure. Um, I, you know, it's funny. Like, I have... I'm, a, I'm geared towards being in that club as well. And I uh, definitely am and, and do that. I find mm-hmm. myself wanting to celebrate as much as humanly possible. But I think I to- Like, I'm not in there as much as you are. I can also tend to be more of, like, I need to be, like, sink into a depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not like a depression, like a... A negative depression, just a realistic state of being where I'm like, I just kind of want to feel feelings deeply, whatever they are. Yeah. As they are. And, and in fact, I have to turn them into right. In lemon fact, meringue pie. Correct. And I, I admire both sides. Yeah. But in, I think after dad died, I've been more on the side of being like, I actually feel terrible, which is something I think I needed to do because 
I think I leaned so hard into kind of celebrating through everything that I needed to touch base with myself personally because I felt like I just wanted to be a little bit more realistic with folks about where where I actually was. But it's interesting because when I was at the helm, when I had Brucey and I was at the helm of business, I would have not really imagined to do that. But it was kind of after that and now in my current life where I'm not, I mean, I still run my own business, but it's really just me. I'm not looking after 20 people a day. Right, right. I was kind of able to sink more into my into my own authenticity of actually where I was at, my grief. And we all have duality. Yeah. So there's those different parts in ourselves. And yeah. It can depend on which part we feed, too. Totally. With or without lemon meringue pie. Yes. Which is what we're about to talk about. <laughs> yes. So according to Wikipedia, um, National meringue, Lemon Meringue Pie Day is August 15th. Oh, that's funny. A date that, uh, a holiday that dates all the way back to the year of 2006. So 14 years in the making, we celebrate National Lemon Meringue Pie Day. Um, Okay. According to Wikipedia, lemon-flavored custards, puddings, and pies had been made since medieval times, which seems like a long time. Well, eggs, citrus, sugar. Mm. That's it. I guess. It doesn't sound very medieval to me, but I think more of just gruel. But I guess they had lemon pie as well. Lemon gruel. Lemon gruel dates all the way back to the medieval times. Um, Okay, so the meringue was perfected in the 17th century. The earliest recorded recipe was attributed to Alexander uh, Freisch, a Swiss baker from Romandy. And there's some evidence to suggest that the botanist Emile Campbell Brown, who lived from 1830 to 1925, had a very similar recipe uh, concocted by his cooking staff in Wigbeth, Dorset in in 1875 and served to Anthony Ashley Cooper, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, at a hunting ball in Wimsbore, St. Giles, Dorset. Are you with me still? Yes. Who are all these people? What the hell? I'm actually imagining him speaking to a world leader and saying, this is the most delicious, delicious lemon meringue pie, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Um, Okay, so also people say that the Quakers receive a lot of credit for inventing lemon custard in the 1700s. And I don't know, is Shaker lemon pie and Quaker lemon pie the same or does it just sound the same? Are Shakers and Quakers the same? I don't think so, my friend. Get get out of Shakers <laughs> and Quakers. Um, Quakers are, are are Shakers. Quakers can be Shakers, but can Quakers also be Bakers? That's what we need to know about this. So a Philadelphia native, Elizabeth Cohn Goodfellow, a pastry chef and businesswoman and cooking school founder, um, arrived in Philadelphia in 1806 and expanded on lemon custard and, in, and is so mm. said to invent the lemon meringue pie. However, Mm-mm. there is a caveat here, which is that her recipe is apparently... Um, contained whole eggs, whereas lemon meringue pie only has egg yolks in the custard, and they, of course, use the whites for the meringue. That's right. So this is kind of, we really don't know where the hell it came from, and honestly, does it matter? Do we care? Do we care? I find it very interesting. It's fascinating, but at the same time, it's if someone told me it was uh, Elizabeth Goodfellow, I'd be like, great. If someone told me it was made for the Earl of South Shaftesbury, and God Matter, knows Matter when. fact, maybe we made this all up. Yeah. Who know, are we even really here? What the bleep do we know? What the bleep do we know is right. Um, okay, so it's claimed that the meringue, that meringue itself was invented in the Swiss village of Meringue. Oh. It's not spelled the same, spelled M-E-I-R-I-N-G-E-N. I like to think of it being invented in Switzerland. I know, because yeah. like it looks like meringue there. Yeah. It, it makes perfect mm. sense. Um, and improved by Italian chef named Gaspari. 
Gasparini, actually, an Italian chef named Gasparini, between the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century. However, this claim is contested. The Oxford English Dictionary states that the French word is of unknown origin. So Swiss, Swiss. It could have just appeared from out of thin air. So a little bit about lemons. Now, Bobby, can we talk a little bit about lemons for a second? Well, first of all, we are known as the lemon heads. Yes. You Why? and I. Why, you ask? Because we love lemon. We love lemon. We can use a dozen lemons in one dish in a second. Yeah. I have lemon every day in my tea. Mm-hmm. My greatest treat is lemon um, with tea. I put it in my coffee. <laughs> Just kidding. I would if I could. And we always tell the story about when I first met uh, my second husband, Rob, and we went out to eat, and we were having um, franchise of some kind, and we both at the same time called the waiter over, bring us extra lemon. Oh, yeah, because that's and how Rob, we talk to waiters. And Rob, bring us the lemon, <laughs> well, we did. servant waiter. When it waiter. comes to the lemon, it's true. Uh, no. And Rob looked at us like, oh, how could you ask for extra? But we like extra, and we definitely like extra lemon. Yes, that's for sure. But we do not actually talk to servants. No, we like don't. That. We that, don't. That part is. I just feel. Bring that us I the must, lemon. <laughs> I must make sure that people know that is not true. As a service industry Citrus, person, no. Give us the lemon, yep. Okay, so a little bit about lemons. California produces ninety percent of the lemons oh. in the in the U.S. and the Oregon. other, the other lemons come from Arizona, which I thought was interesting. Um, the California citrus industry was not happy with uh, Barack Obama because he lifted a ban on Argentine lemons. Uh, a couple years ago, and I guess that affected the citrus industry in uh, the United States. Citrus industry is hard for me to say. <laughs> say it ten times. Citrus industry. Citrus industry. It's hard. It's a tongue twister. Um, lemons are actually a hybrid between a sour orange and a citron. So they're a hybrid fruit. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Okay. Lemon trees can produce up to 600 pounds of lemons per year. That's unbelievable. That's a lot of lemons. When life gives that's you a lot of zest. When life gives you six hundred lemons per year, um, okay. So then in film, I was like looking up lemon meringue pie in film because it just seems like one of those iconic kind of desserts that you see in like tons of movies. But the yeah. only thing I could really find was in the movie Million Dollar Baby. Oh, and then I watched the scene. Have you seen it? You have. I've it's, seen the movie, but yeah. I don't remember lemons. I know it's not really lemon heavy on its yeah. content. <laughs> There's just one scene <laughs> with lemon meringue pie. Um, the film was released in the year 2004, directed by uh, chair enthusiast Clint Eastwood, starring Hilary Swank and Morgan Freeman. And it won Best Picture. It won, it was nominated for, or maybe it won, maybe it won everything. Actor and they gave and Lemons an Academy Award on that one, exactly. right? Exactly. The pie was Best Pie in a supporting role, goes to Lemon Ring. Um, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the scene is that, it, you know, Clint Eastwood is like a hard ass in the whole thing. It's a very kind of brutal movie. He looks like he's sucked on a lemon. And then Hilary Swank, in a kind of disarming way, brings him to a diner in a trailer park, and they eat lemon meringue pie, and you see him kind of soften up, which I think is used as, mm. you know, um, to exemplify that even a hard ass like when eating their favorite thing can kind of mellow out and find some kind of sweetness n- nice. no pun intended well i have one other comment about lemons that's sure. timely my dear dear friend is uh, found herself actually one of our guests kathy um found herself with a terrible diagnosis this week and she had surgery and we'll see what treatments come after that but i think about her and after she had all her losses um, we took her to jamaica 
Mm. And we took her to this wonderful retreat house in um, Treasure Island, Treasure Beach, Treasure Beach, mm-hmm. the south coast of Jamaica. And there's lots of passion fruits there. Mm. So all this loss had happened in her life. And she saw this big bowl of lemons and she made passion fruit cocktail. With lemons? Yes. Oh, wow. So I'm making her a sign now that says, when life gives Kathy lemons, she makes passion fruit cocktail. Oh, that's cute. That's really sweet. Nice. Well, this was really a great episode and really big thanks to Dana. Dana's such a important person in the food world and yes. in the, you know, history of print printed food magazines. It's amazing. She's just an icon and an inspiration. And, and so generous. And generous with her time. Really, really truly generous with yeah. her time. And a great mentor yeah. to a lot of people and a helper. She's a giver. I was listening to something. I was listening to Dak Shepard's podcast yesterday. And he had a guest talking about uh, the psychology behind givers and takers. Mm-hmm. And Dana is definitely 100% a giver. A giver of her time, of her knowledge. Of, and she's just a wonderful person. So we really appreciate and having thank her. Thank you, on. Dana, for giving to processing. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, go ahead and find yourself a slice of a lemon meringue. It's delicious. America's favorite pie. Okay, ciao for now. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.